The Creative Nonfiction Podcast is sponsored by Goucher College's Master of Fine Arts and Nonfiction. The Goucher MFA is a two-year low-residency program. Online classes let you learn from anywhere, while on-campus residencies allow you to hone your craft with accomplished mentors who have Pulitzer Prizes and best-selling books to their names. The program boasts a nationwide network of students, faculty, and alumni, which has published 140 books and counting. You'll get opportunities to meet literary agents and learn the ins and outs of the publishing journey. Visit goucher.edu forward slash nonfiction to start your journey now. Take your writing to the next level and go from hopeful to published in Goucher's MFA program for nonfiction. By the time you hear this, I might be legally deaf. Why? Because two days ago, I saw... I sure as hell hope I don't get sued for that. How about some music I actually paid for? Yes, I saw my home team play for two massive hours. My wife told me that I had to wear earplugs on account of the damage I've done to my ears in the past 38 years. Do not tell her, but I took one of them out. I'm as bad as I want to be. My ears already ring all day, so... Whatever, it's driving me to the brink of insanity as is. What's another two hours of pulse pounding? Tympanic membrane reducing Metallica. Anyway, you probably want to know who's on the show this week. It's, of course, why you tune in. This is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. You know, the show where I talk to badass writers, filmmakers, and producers about the art and craft of telling true stories, whereby. I unpack their artist journey and tap into the routines and habits about doing the work. This week for episode 129 is Lisa Dapolito, the mastermind behind the brilliant documentary Love Gilda about the legendary comedian and comedic actor Gilda Radner. We talk about Lisa's early life growing up in Greenwich Village her transition from acting to filmmaking, and what really drew her to Gilda Radner. If that sounds at all intriguing, that's what we do here at CNF Pod HQ. Consider subscribing to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and follow me and the show on Twitter, at Brendan O'Mara and at CNF Pod. It's another little uh, playpen of the internet where we hang out and talk about this kind of stuff. If you're a repeat listener of the show, I'd deeply appreciate it if you left an honest review over on iTunes. I also have a monthly newsletter, yeah, where I send out my reading recommendations of what you might have missed from the world of the podcast on the first of the month. Head over to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to subscribe to the newsletter. Once a month, no spam. Can't beat it. What else? Oh, yes. Today's podcast is brought to you by Creative Nonfiction Magazine. For nearly 25 years, Creative Nonfiction has been fuel for nonfiction writers and storytellers publishing a lively blend of exceptional long and short-form nonfiction narratives and interviews, as well as columns that examine the craft, style, trends, and ethics of writing true stories. In short, 
Creative nonfiction is true stories well told. I think that should just about do it. Here's my conversation with the brilliant Lisa Dapolito. Village among a lot of artists and creative people. Um, what what kind of influence did that have on you as a young person? As then you progressed through your you know your middle school years into high school and so forth. Um, I think it had a lot um, of influence. Even though my parents weren't creative people, um, I think our teachers in school were really creative, and and my best friend's mom was a. Um, and she's still like my mentor. She was an off-Broadway director and actor, off-off-Broadway, like very bohemian. Mm-hmm. Um, her, her name is Sandy Sheeran. And just thinking outside of box creativity. not So I got it like sort of by osmosis from just being around a lot of creative people, I think. Mm. And, and the public school system in some ways in New York is awful, but in some ways it's it's very good too because you're exposed to all these amazing museums and theater and and you take class trips to all these great places. So there's a lot of, of stimuli and creative um, ideas floating around. That's got to be tremendously uh, just the city as a resource has to be so great because like you're saying at your fingertips really is if you had that inclination to be a painter you can go check out the museums or an actor as as you have have done you know you you have broadway and off broadway and that must have been really influential like outside of the boundaries of school yeah i mean we had really you know it's interesting with facebook you find all your old friends online and um now we're starting to find our old teachers and when we were in junior high school and we were 14 to 17 some of our teachers were only like 21 or 22 or 23 so it's really interesting um i'm sure that is all over the country you have young teachers but um you know they were really creative and we were really lucky um you know not everybody has that luck in new york but it is there if if you if you're lucky to have somebody expose it you know expose it to you they must have, even if they were that young, they must have seemed so old to you at the time, too, even though there was only like five or six years between you. <laughs> yeah, it's so strange because we um, somebody posted our fifth grade uh, uh, class online, and they talked about our teacher, Mr. Tobin, who we had found online. And um, he was only 21 years old, but he wrote all these plays, and he was an actor, and we just thought he was the coolest, the coolest person in the world. And we were all remembering like parts that he wrote for us. And this wasn't like a theater school or anything. This is just a regular class. But, yeah. you know, it was, it, we were really lucky. I think I was really lucky to be around so many creative people. And at, at the time, you know, Greenwich Village really was a, a magnet um, for creative people. And what did that fifth grade Lisa see herself doing in the future? Oh, I think I want to be an. I mean, I always wanted to be an actress from the time I was a kid. Mm. So that was that was really sort of what I always wanted to do. And what uh, what steps did you start taking as maybe you started to have show some talent and some uh, adherence to wanting to do it? Uh, what what were some of those paths along the way, or the things along the way that you were? using to sort of manifest manifest that dream like and maybe some mentors who were coaching you along the way too 
I don't think I, I mean, I don't think I really had any acting talent, to be honest with you, finding out later in life. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but everyone has dreams, and that's what you want to do. Um, and I think I never, you know, I dabbled in all kinds of different art. Like in junior high school, I played the flute, and then I went to an art school for high school. And, um, but among the way, I was always in plays, and I started getting professional work when I was younger. Um, you know, commercials and things like that. So there was a lot of, um, I, I think my teachers, my friends, um, there was a lot of influences because people were really doing their own thing. And, and um, so I don't know, I think in some ways it all adds, you know, your whole life kind of adds up to who you are. And, so, you know, it's like layers of different things you experience um, adds into the, you know, your create, you know, if you're doing a creative project, I think it's, it all adds into that. At what point in your journey as an actor did you start to think, oh, you know what, I might be more comfortable or I want to at least experiment being behind the camera? My ex-husband was an actor. So when my son was born, we were both actors. And it's not a really easy life if you're not um, working full time. Mm -hmm. So one of us had to get a real job. So I fell into this part-time my friend got me a job at this ad agency and somehow I fell into the production department because even though I wasn't a producer I I knew all the casting directors and I knew all the production companies and I knew how casting and stuff like that worked so once I started doing that I really loved it and I really saw how much easier it is um, to be on the other side of the camera than to be in front of it uh, how valuable was it for you going, uh, having been in front of the camera and gone through casting and even working on some high-profile high projects? You know, I'm sure many people are familiar with you and, and have done even just a modicum of research know that you were in Goodfellas, so you worked on some you know, prime sets. Uh, so how did being in front of the camera influence and help you when you got behind the camera? Well, one, I had a lot of sympathy for actors. Mm -hmm. So I think it was... It was um, and a lot of sympathy for crew people. So I kind of understood what everybody did in terms of production and what they they go through. And um, I knew everybody everybody's role. So I think I tried to always um, to to always put the best productions together with the best people possible because I was very lucky. Even at, you know. Besides from Goodfellas, I worked as on a lot of other movies, mm -hmm. um, either in production or as a stand-in. Or and so I really worked with you know I saw the best people work, and those pe those really amazing directors are so nice to work for. And and the the I learned that the um, the most successful people create the best experience for the people on the set. So I think I I. I, I didn't think I think, thought about it, but I think I learned that, mm. you know, because I think also people think like acting, directing, you have this kind of idea of what it is. And it really is just really hard work with people working really hard and doing the best, um, you know, doing their jobs the best that they can. Right. That uh, uh, so many people do, they don't realize, just like you're saying that to make a piece of art, whether that's a documentary film, a true story, or even a fe feature films that are that are fictitious and anything that that kind of rigor that goes into the day to day grind of it, 
And uh, at, at what point did you realize, especially as a as a director and filmmaker, that you're like, oh, this is you know, this is this is a grind. Uh, I need to ha- find ways to check in with myself so I don't get overwhelmed by the just the the sheer titanic mass of the project. Um, I don't know if I ever did that. I just think there's such satisfaction when you see it all come together, mm-hmm. whether it's a commercial, you know, once you're like, you go through different phases, once everything's shot and then you're sitting in the edit room, there's a new stress that happens. And then there's a new excitement as it starts to get put together. And so I think there's different, different periods for different, um, uh, you know, you get to relax at different points in different periods. I think at least it was for me. And I always loved the excitement of being on a, I really loved the excitement of being on a, on a set. And I also really like the somewhat relaxing feeling it is to be in an edit room. Mm. I think the, the, the part that was always the stressful for me was, um, you know, in my professional life, uh, in, in advertising was before, before everything was put together, before you really knew you were doing a project and you were trying to put all the pieces together. And I think that was the same thing with my film is before you know you have the money or you have the talent or you have the, that's the stressful part for me is not knowing if something's going to happen or not. Hmm. I, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm that, sure in your in your head you have a, a sort of an idealized vision of what it, you want it to look like, but you have to still get all those ducks in a row. Yeah, yeah, and and you have to you know motivate and push to make things happen too. Right. So there's a lot of like self motivation. Hmm. What is that self talk like for you to to keep yourself motivated? Um, I don't know. I have me, I have a good support system of friends around me. And, um, so it's always good to have somebody to talk to when you're, when you're really feeling like, oh my God, I don't think this is going to happen or, or that. So I think I have that, which is really good. And I think, um, somebody told me every day to do the thing you don't want to do the first, like the first thing of the day should be the thing you really don't want to do. So that really kind of helps in some ways when you get the thing over that you, whether it's like you want to make a phone call to ask somebody to be involved in your project or whether you have to, I don't know, pick up your laundry, you know, sometimes it's like the thing you don't. And I, I found that kind of freeing creatively because you can waste a lot of time worrying about, about things or worrying about like, Oh, I have to do this. I have to do this. But when you do it, and you get it, or at least for me, you get it out of the way, then you can move on to the other things that really matter. Yeah, it kind of creates its own momentum in a way, too, when you're able to sort of knock off those tasks that are taking up a lot of sort of RAM inside your brain. Yeah. Yeah, and some of them are big, you know, some of them are big tasks, like, you know, emailing somebody and or, or calling somebody and asking them for for support you know, to ask them for money for a film or to ask them to be in the film or, or so some of those are big things and some are little. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are moments too. It's hard for me to, to sometimes pick up, pick up the phone and have an interview, whether I'm writing a story or 
even uh, having a podcast or anything to to have that interview because there's a certain degree of performance anxiety, if you will, that that I sort of suffer with. And those things, if I don't like you're saying, like if I don't knock them out like early, that can really sort of weigh you down like a lead vest. Is that um, similarly? Are there kinds of anxieties of that nature that that you kind of wrestle with that once you get them out of the way you're like oh, it frees you up to be the creative person that you are I guess it depends on different things because mm-hmm. with Love Gilda it started as a passion project so it's always been I've always been like the main filmmaker producer on it so there's a lot of um paperwork and financial stuff and and things that if it wasn't a passion project there would be a team of people to help so i think those are the ang- and those are like the whole in the whole scheme of making a film that that's has been the biggest anxiety sometimes for me is to follow up on paperwork and expenses and excel sheets and and um things that are totally not they have nothing to do with the creative process but they have to do with, you know, the the whole overall production. Yeah, and this, and also as a as a passion project too, uh, most things are you're you're just accountable to yourself. But then maybe as you start to get investors and backers, suddenly you're you know you're not just beholden to you and your vision. It's kind of like you've got other people you have to think about too, because you don't want to let them down. I imagine that kind of weighs on you too yeah it's it weighs down on you but it also motivates you like early on in my project i did an indiegogo campaign mm-hmm. and raised a, a decent sum of money so there's all these there were like 400 people who gave big and small to the project and they're all waiting for the film to come out so in some ways it's it's it weighs you down but in some ways you're accountable because you're like oh my god these people like gave money and these people you know trust they have their trust in you that you're gonna that you're gonna uh, complete what you said you're gonna complete. Because mm. it is really nice for people to give you money that you, they don't even know you. Yeah. Because they support your project. I mean that that's and I do I I like when like just on a side note after the film comes out you know the film comes out on DVD and on demand I still have to. Um, to honor all the people who who donated and would get a DVD. So those are like the little things that kind of have weighed me down on this job, on this project. But it's also um, wonderful that, that I had that support because I wouldn't have probably started the film unless I had that seed money. Yeah, and it's got to be on top of just having having the money to help with resources and travel and whatever it is that to to help assemble the thing it's also incredibly validating that you you have like it's almost like doing you have an audience that's hungry for this and it's like oh i'm not just making this in vain there's actually going to be people who want to see this when it's done yeah yeah i i I, it it was great to know that there were so many people who love gilda out there i had a feeling there were but it was really nice that there were people who wanted to see something about her and when you take on projects of of this nature, of course they they take a long time. It took you four and a half years to, from from conception to to uh, putting it together. Uh, often, you know, you're going to be with this for a long time, and oftentimes you're drawn to a certain subject because there's there could be something that you see in that main subject that sort of reflects back to you. 
So did you, like, when you take on a subject like Gilda, what elements of you did you see in her, and what connection did you have with her as you were making the film and doing all your research? I think a lot in the sense of I really loved learning about how she developed her um, characters and, and all the process that led to her career. So I really loved and identified with, you know, her younger years um, in theater and and um, how she created her characters. So I really loved, loved that part. And also, um, I think many parts of her, I mean, her insecurities about what she looks like and who she was, I think it was something that... Um, that I and so many other people can identify with. I mean, I wasn't saying like, oh, I was a, exactly like her, but I can understand um, the insecurities she had and, and why she had them. And and as an outsider, you don't think, you think when people have it all, they, they should have it all. But underneath it all, there's, you know, not every, probably no one's 100% happy. There's always something. And and you can look at somebody's life and see like Gilda was, Gilda was, at the time America's sweetheart and and got an Emmy, and then she's struggling with all these inner things that are going on. So I I found that very interesting and very real. And then on another note, um, I had gone through my family's illness, um, my grandmother and my um, parents, so I can identify with. I mean, not exactly through because Gilda was the person who was actually going through it herself, but I can identify, you know, I can under, identify with that, you know, the the pain and the unknowing and the uncertainty of of what life is like when you have a health health um, situation. Hmm. Yeah, is that uh, is that experience that you had with the with the, the illness in your family? What kind of brought you to Gilda's club? No, I, you know, it's interesting because I didn't, I never, I never made the connection for some strange reason, even though Gilda's club is like three blocks away from where I grew up. Hmm. It took me a long time to realize why I love Gilda's club too much, so much. I think I loved it because I loved the people, um, the spirit of the people who are going through these really challenging times and are open and honest um, and have fun and have humor and have support and support each other. So I think I found people very courageous mm. because I would interview them for these fundraising videos and they were so open and many, or if not most, had very serious cancers and illnesses and um, were able to talk about it and face it. And I, I just found that really, really um, inspiring. And, you know, Gilda's spirit kind of lives on there in Gilda's club and she Many of the members had read her book. So once I started doing the um, the fundraising videos, I read her book. And and so I guess I just was very inspired by her. But then later on, my friends are like, you know why you love Gilda's, you know, why you're doing this film or why you love Gilda's Club. And I was like, oh, because I love Gilda. And they're like, no, because of your parents. So I said, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, in some mm-hmm. ways, I kind of wish, you know, Gilda's Club has support for people who are going through and their family who are going through things. And it opened um, a year after my parents passed away. I guess in some ways I get that kind of support now by still working on um, projects for them. Did your parents pass away in the same year? Um, yeah, it's kind of sad if I, I say it all out loud. Um, oh. 
but my my dad, Pat, my dad and my mother and my grandmother, all within eighteen months, and oh, I was geez. pregnant at the time. Oh man! Yeah, so yeah, I know it sounds so sad. Oh, I'm so well, you know. Yeah. Well, it is. It is very sad. I'm really <laughs> sorry you had to go through that. So I think that was sort of why, in terms of Gilda, you know, I didn't come from the project thinking I want to do a film about Roseanne, Rosanna Dana and her characters. I think I was. I started the project was really first about Gilda's Club, and then it morphed more into. Um, Gilda's legacy at Gilda's Club, and then it morphed into more of Gilda's journey with cancer, and then it it you know create it was her whole life because I I felt like I wanted to know um, who she was. Right, because the you could have easily have taken the direction of making this solely about her comedy and her and that public side of her, but you went to a much more raw and vulnerable place with her. And when did you, when were you conscientious of that, that was going to be your vision of this film? Um, well, I always wanted it to be, I never wanted to be it to be like just a series of sketches mm-hmm. about it. But I think the real, there was a very big changing point in the film. And that was when um, Gilda's brother, who's been the biggest supporter of the film, about... Halfway through the film, I was just going to finish it up as a small film for Gilda's Club and kind of let it be what it was. And um, then he gave me access to Gilda's boxes that had been in storage since she passed away. And in those were diaries and audio recordings she did and her photo albums. And that was like a changing, like a big, the changing moment of the creative of the film. Right. Because once, I, yeah, so once I, I was able to start listening to Gilda, you know, I watched all of Gilda's interviews that were available, you know, through NBC or ABC or or online. And when I've listened to her personal audio tapes and I can really hear her talking and really hear her telling a story, it was, it was like as if she was talking to me. And I think everybody who's been involved in the film, all the editors and producers, and um, everyone has that feeling when they hear the real authentic Gilda that she's actually talking directly to them. Mm. So that was really the changing point. And and that was my goal was to try to create a film that was really Gilda's story from her point of view as much as I could tell it from her point of view. And what was the... Let's see the uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the the process by which you began courting people to to talk about her and 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 of her and people who were inspired by her uh, as you know as you were looking to get other voices into the film that were you know uh, besides Gilda's you know how what was that process like for you as you began um, trying to get those lead dominoes and get those people on camera for you? I think. I mean, in some ways, that's why the film took so long, because it took a while to each person led to another person who led to another person. So once somebody felt comfortable being filmed, like first it was Alan and Robin Zydell, Gilda's good friend, and um, Gilda's writing partner on SNL. And then a couple months later, it was Michael, Gilda's brother. And then a couple months later, it was Gilda's best friend, Judy. So it really took... You know, and then I started to get more of the more famous people 
like um, um, Paul Schaefer and Lorraine Newman. And then that led to, you know, Martin Short. And then like Amy Poehler led to um, all the modern day comedians. So each person kind of led to another person. Mm -hmm. It would have been great if I shot everything at the same time, but each person was a separate shoot in a separate location. So, um, Mm. um, so, but it was all about trust, you know, trust that um, for Gilda's friend that I was doing the right story. And I think for the modern day comedians, I mean, it's, it's a, a gift if anyone's going to be in your documentary because their managers and their agents, um, you know, are not super supportive because there's no payment involved. And these are all really busy people who are getting dozens, if not hundreds of offers to do things. So it's really a a gift that um, anybody would participate in a documentary. And I think they do it because they really believe in, in, um, in what you're doing. And in my case, um, really love Gilda and really truly was inspired by her. Yeah, I had written down in my notes uh, trust actually because uh, projects of these of this nature you do have to engender trust from you know the the core people and then as that radiates out you can it, it validates the enterprise and you get people on board and uh, how uh, at what point did you or or how did you engender uh, the trust that it, it took. To get you know to get that ball rolling, get that momentum, so you could you know secure a lot of these titans of of the comedic industry into your movie. Well, I had really I had a really good producer, James, who has a great reputation in the industry with um, getting talent. So that was really helpful because he knew how to get to talent, which is really important. But I think trust. I don't know. I mean, I've always been that's always been my, my goal is to really tell an honest story of Gilda. And she's a really good person to do an honest story about because she doesn't have, though she has insecurities, you know, she's a very optimistic, um, she's a very optimistic person. And her story, though it's sad, what happened to her is still an um, inspiring story. So I tried to always keep to the truth. So I think, um, her friends kind of understood that. And also they were such a good resource besides Michael, um, who was supportive in every way. Gilda's best friend, Judy and Pam and her friend, Robin, they all gave me um, over periods of time, their home movies and letters. And I think that they, they got to a point where um, they did trust me. And then when they saw this, then there was another, you know, moment when, when everyone sees the film and you wonder, Oh my God, are they, are they going to be, I mean, I've, I tested different ideas uh, about it. Um, but you, you worry, you know, cause I never met Gilda. This, the film is a, is, is the creation of my imagination of who she is. Mm-hmm. So there's a, you know, there was a very, especially with Gilda's brother, I was very concerned of how, um, you know, did I really capture the real Gilda? And, um, you know, her friends will say I did. Like her friend Alan told me, he, I mean, he, he's been wonderful, him and Robin promoting the film. So they go out to a lot of screenings and then do like a question and answer afterwards. 
And Alan just emailed me a couple of days ago. He's like, you know, the film gets better every time I see it. Oh, wow. And, and that means a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that everyone feels, and they feel even more that they feel like they got Gilda back in some ways because everybody loved her. And, you know, she died so young and she was such a big part. You know, besides having a really strong close circle of friends, Gilda had dozens and dozens and dozens of people in her life who loved her, you know, who were good friends. You know, somehow Gilda had like a million friends besides the audiences who loved her. So it was very, I think it was building their trust, but also people didn't really want to talk about her because it made them sad. Mm. And I think the movie in some ways brings her back. Though some of her friends are like, it makes me too sad. I can't see it again. But, but other, but other people are like, you know, very, but everyone does like it in her circle of friends. So that's, that's probably the thing I feel most proud of. Yeah. Wow. Um, and when you, when you got some of the material, I'm thinking of her journals and a lot of those great archival home movies. Uh, when you got those in your hands, like what was going through your mind when you had that material in your lap? Well, I mean, the first, um, there were the audio tapes. So in her collection that Michael had was a whole lot of audio tapes. So there are audio tapes that Gilda um, created for her book. And there were 32 hours of audio tapes for that, among other other things that she just recorded. But the audio was, besides being amazing, was extremely damaged. And each tape had a different problem. And each part of each tape had a different problem. Like there were some tapes that were great. And then you get to a point and you just couldn't hear. You could always hear, but it was always um, warped or there were so many different problems. So the first, my, since my goal was to, to um, really have Gilda tell her story, the first, the first thing we really did was go through all the audio tape, tapes and put together um, a film based on these audio tapes. And so the first cut of the film had a lot of bad audio. And we, we tried everywhere, post-production companies all over the world, in Berlin, and nobody could really fix, at that point, no one could really fix the tapes. So the first rendition of the film was with subtitles. And um, my filmmaker friends were like, it's okay, it's really Gilda. And then my non-filmmaker friends were like, this is really annoying and I can't hear and I can't watch. And so that was going through the audio was really hard. And then sub um, sub subsequently, we went and found um, a lot of different uh, interviews that she had done that like, even like the interview you and I, you and I are doing back in the day, people would, would record it on an audio, um, you know, on a cassette tape. Mm -hmm. And we actually found a few of the um, journalists who kept their tapes, including um, two students from the University of Michigan who went and interviewed Gilda in 1977 or 78 at SNL, and they kept the tape. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so then we were able to start supplementing some of the bad audio with some good audio. Then we started using her audiobook, which I didn't really want to use um, because she had recorded her book three weeks before she died. 
so to me, I could hear the sadness in her voice. So I tried to limit that. And so that, so in terms of all the material, that was the first layer was getting through the audio. And until we were in audio post-production, I didn't even know if it would work because along the way, there were editors telling me we needed, you know, we needed to get an accent in and, and read some of Gilbert's um, voiceover. And that was something that I never really wanted. So, um, and then we had this amazing guy named um, Dominic Bartoli, who actually was able to really fix some of the bad audio, which was, and I don't know what he did or how he does it, but um, so that was, that was the, the hardest. And then the journals were just, you know, another layer. So um, to me, the audio was Gilda's, you know, Gilda telling her story. And the journals that we used, I tried to um, have like her inner voice, like tell the part of her story that she didn't tell and feel her friends could tell. Those are brilliant. You can see how excited like, uh, you know, Amy Poehler and Bill Hader and Cecily Strong were when they had that in their hands. It was like it was, you know, Indiana Jones getting his hands on the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. You know, it was, it was yeah. pure treasure. Yeah, that was, I mean, you know, that was surprising because at that point I'd had the diaries for a year and they mostly read from something I call the same diary where Gilda just writes down random thoughts or, or sketches or things about fame. And I got so used to having her diaries. So when I pulled them out to each of the um, um, actors, their reaction was so strong. And so I wasn't really expecting that hmm. at all. Which was really nice. And in, in uh in over the course of the 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 project, like you said, you know, four and a half years, uh what part of making a film like this, where do you feel most alive and most engaged in that process? I think for for me it's when I'm interviewing people. I love I love that and I love hearing them gilded from her friends. And I loved hearing um, about Amy and Bill and everyone inspired by Gilda. So I love that's my favorite part of the whole process mm -hmm. is actually the interview process. And then I love when it's uh, in a rough cut. That's really good when it's all like together hmm. and you have something. And then when it's really done, I, well, I don't know, because it's never really done. Right. It's, it's, <laughs> It, it is what it is. But I, I, to me, it's the real the process of, of sitting there and interviewing and hearing, you know, and learning. Because I think that's what it, to me, you know, docu documentaries are, is just like, it's not, it's, you learn from these interviews. I mean, you learn from the research you do, but there's nothing like listening to somebody tell a story or from their point of view, you learn so much. And in some ways, because the, um, the interviews were over a period of time. It allowed me to be able to go and research things in the meantime that I had learned, um, you know, places Gilda were, was that was never anywhere online. I would hear about from, from an interview and then I could go through um, archival and try to find, oh, she was in Boston. Maybe there's something in Boston. So, so I, I, I think I also love the whole detective work of it all. Oh yeah. Kate. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like an act of discovery. You know, this thing leads to that thing, and then it just all of a sudden you're like, whoa! Like I could have never imagined that on day one that it was going to reveal this. But over the course of your research and interviewing, you're like, holy cow! I'm over. I'm over here now. I would have never thought of that. Yeah, yeah. It's really it's fascinating, and it's really fascinating. I mean, it's really fascinating to get into somebody's life and read their journals and and. Um, and kind of know know what they're thinking or create what you're thinking or think about. Um, why do you like you know? I was sitting with Dan, my editor, David, and we'll be like, "Why do you think Gilda was like?" We'd we'd analyze things in her life. Why did she Why did she do this Broadway play? Or why didn't she go out with Why did she go out with this guy? It's like we're analyzing somebody's life, and it's, it's really fun or interesting. Hmm. When you're sitting in in the in the editing room and maybe you have that rough cut and you know you have to still find ways to maybe trim it down or just tighten things up, uh, what is that process like for you? And how ultimately, how do you come to the decision about what to leave out, which is every bit as important as what you leave in, really? Well, it's a collective process, too. And in terms of our process, it was what we had, too. Like, the home movies were such a gem. So how do we use the home... Like, we used all the home movies that we could. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, there's parts of Gilda's career that we left out because they weren't, you know, that or that were in there. There were interviews that weren't in there that came out. Um, also, I, I, I always do... Th- Throughout this process, there are people that I show cuts to. And I've shown um, people in the industry and also friends who have nothing to do with filmmaking. So from the moment of, like, assemblies and cuts, I do show people to get their opinion, too, to see what resonates with them and what doesn't resonate with them. Mm-hmm. And then we had, um, when we did have a rough cut, we had a screening for, like, 100 people. And there were filmmakers and there were non-filmmakers. And my son brought um, a whole bunch of college kids who had no idea who Gilda was. Oh, wow. Which was really, yeah. So just to see, like, um, you know, and then you still make, you know, I watch the film now and I think of every mistake that I made, (laughs) (laughs) you know. But but that was one of the things I wanted to know is, would this film resonate with people who didn't know who Gilda was? So that was, um, that's. So yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a process, and then you still I think kick yourself and say why did I put that in and why did I leave that in and um, why didn't I focus more on this or why did I focus more why did I focus too much on this so I don't I don't know it just kind of happens and then you have to we had a deadline because we knew we got into Trebe- the Tribeca Film Festival so it was like the film is done we, it has to be done. Because I think you can go on forever putting things in and taking things out. Oh, definitely. Oh, absolutely. And that's I think that's that's uh, something anyone creating anything can relate to. In a, I, I forget who who had the quote, but it was like all morning I labored about putting a comma in. I spent the afternoon taking the comma out, and it's just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you could really. Yeah. The only difference between 
the the finished product and what you're working on is that you know it's on a dvd now i can't touch it anymore it's published but if yeah. i could i would <laughs> yeah and, and the audience is never or the reader is not going to know the comma or not comma right right you know you know so it's it's uh it's um yeah it's it's a a process um you know in in some ways our process was what do we have and why don't we have this other stuff so there were things that we were searching for that um you know because of the film is you know, they're strongly made up of Gilbert's voice. You have to have visuals that go with it. And there were some good stories and things that had no visuals that we could find to um, to tell the story. So there were things that were lost just because um, we, you know, there's just so many photos you could show. Mm. And if you have photos that don't make sense to what somebody's talking about, then, um, so those were cuts, some of the cuts we made. Like there was this great story about Gilda being at camp and um, how she felt like such an outsider. And and when she was in a play, all the pretty girls would be the princesses and all the um, bossy girls would be next to the princesses. And then her, the fat girl, would be like the maid or the jester. Hmm. And but the way she tells it, and then she's like, I would go into my cabin and I would eat Tootsie Rolls and I would just cry. And then I realized, you know, I can't be pretty, but I could be funny. And it's such a great story. Well, yeah, what a moment. Yeah, but there was nothing to, and also the audio was, the audio was really, really bad. And everyone was really telling me to lose the story. And I really didn't want to lose it. But the audio was really bad. So people didn't understand, like only I, like I was the only one who understood. I could tell the story and it sounds really good, but if you were listening to the audio, you'd be like, what is she talking about? And then there was no, so that was like one of those things that like, you know, creatively you're like, I love this, this is the best. And then you have, a, you know, editors and producers saying, well, you know, and audiences saying, well, we can't, it's, we don't understand what she's talking about. And I think I I I think the the sentiment of that scene even though as great as it would have been but you the way you were able to craft the story you fe- you can feel that from her like that that moment in that scene about her using uh you know comedy as a way to to win the acclaim like using that as her secret weapon and that bubbles through the whole the, just that sentiment bubbles through the whole film. So even though it wasn't in there, you knew you knew of it enough to elicit it in the movie, if that makes any sense. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you got that. Um, yeah, because I was really heartbreaking to take out that that audio. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that sort of to me was the sentiment of Gilda. And she did tell that story in different ways. But that was just the best way that she had told it. But but you can't have every you can't uh you can't have everything. Mm. And when you were making putting together your component parts of the movie, uh how did you keep that organized? Or like are you a corkboard and index card kind of person or post-it notes? Like how do you yeah. keep those things straight? Well, for me everything is in my head, which mm. doesn't make it easier for 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 people who work with you. Right. So that's <laughs> that's that's um but because this was a four and a half, you know, a long process, you know, the first two years, my editor, David, and I really, um, you know, we transcribed everything and he put things into buckets. And I knew 
I did know the, I knew all the footage. I knew everything I had inside and out. And I had, I had taken it and put it in my own, like, um, um, premiere. Like I made my own selects and I did my own things that had nothing to do with, you know, I would show the editors, but like, I, I really knew that footage inside and out. And then when Anne, um, my main editor who really, really edited the film came in, she is the opposite of me. She is the, the index cards and the, and the, and the, um, she's super organized, like really super organized. So it was a really good component. Um, it was a good person for me to have as an editor because she was the opposite of me. She was super linear and, and organized and I had it all in my head. Yeah, I know it's it's a, it's a different different people have different ways of doing things, but to me it was really sort of I really needed to know the material inside and out, and I kept it, and I could always say, oh yeah, in, in April, April nineteen seventy six, Gilbert talked about in this tape, she talked about this, so I I knew it, so that's very helpful. Yeah, just to to really say we had once we really started post production, we had an amazing edit team and a whole support system. We had a supervising editor. At one point, we had two editors. We had an assistant editor. We had uh, another assistant editor. So there was it, because it's so heavily archived. You know, it was a lot of work, and I did have thousands of photos and dozens of hours of audio and and lots of interviews. So I can't. So in terms of uh, organizing, I really have to say the editors did an amazing job. In this being your first feature length documentary, uh, what movies or documentaries were you, you know, watching or inspired by that you modeled yourself after as you were looking to, you know, put this together? Um, well, I watched every um, biography doc that I could find. And so that was really important to see how other people told the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if I was, I was so, I'm not sure if there was anybody I modeled my, the film after. Um, I think to me, I was sort of still going, I had my actor's cap on and I was sort of thinking of Gilda as a character mm. and sort of going through it that way. Though I've seen so many great bio docs that, that, um, and I can't even name any that, um, I mean, they're all the listen to me, Marlon doc was great. And the Kurt Cobain and, and, um, uh, Jane. And, and I mean, there were so many good ones. When you were tackling this project, what, uh, it being your, your first one, I know you spent a, you know, a lot of years at, at the ad agency doing that kind of production. Uh, but when you tackled this, what surprised you about, how difficult it is to assemble a 90 minute feature documentary. I think I was naive in the sense of the resources involved mm-hmm. because coming from, though I had done a lot of long, long form projects, like a lot of long form, um, you know, our, our pre- pretty serious topics in healthcare, um, you know, that would be considered documentaries, but um, more for a corporate audience. And I didn't really, you know, I always had a budget. I didn't ever have to think about raising money. 
and um, there were always resources available. So I think that was one of the hardest things was realizing all the, the, the things that you need. And also budgets and documentaries are not the same as in advertising. So I couldn't exactly call, you know, the editors and the, the some of the people I had worked on with before because, you know, they were making, you know, a lot more money than, than docu- unfortunately, the documentary people make or, or is it here into a documentary budget? So that was difficult to know who, you know, where to find the right people mm-hmm. in some sense. And then creatively, you know, it, it, hour and a half carrying a story. I don't know. It sort of it, it revolved over, evolved over a period of time. I think working with a composer, I'd never really worked. I've never worked um, one-on-one with a composer on a, a, a real composer. Um, I've worked with music houses who kind of hand you over things, but I've never worked intimately with a composer. Mm. And um, I really had had a wonderful composer, Miriam Cutler, who came in. She really came in late in the project. Um, I think she had, I can't even remember, but she had like six weeks to compose the whole film. Mm. And I really learned from her um, how her process and how she worked really taught me um, the importance of music in a film. And I think just like how fascinating it is, is how a different, how a musical or composer feel like how they see a film and how, um, uh, so that was a real learning experience for me. And I really, I think one of my favorite things that, um, that I learned making this film. And is this a storytelling form that you feel like you want to return to for future projects? Oh yeah. I mean, I love this. I love the discovery. I love the inspiring person. I love, um, you know, it is sort of like acting in some ways, whereas when you're an actress, you're creating a character. So I found that this is, this is very fulfilling to have a subject um, and bring bring this person to life. So I really do love um, I love this this type of filmmaking. Awesome. Well, Lisa, you've been very generous with your with your time. Um, I, I'm so thrilled and honored that we got to talk about uh, talk about you and your process, and of course your wonderful movie and tribute to Gilda Radner. Um, where can people find out um, more about you on maybe social media or website and also get more familiar with the movie if they are not already familiar with it? Um, you can go to lovegilda.com and find out all about the on-demand and how to watch the film. And then basically I've just been, my social media has been the film itself. So you can go on Facebook um, and find Love Gilda or on Twitter. And um, you're basically our, our, my identity and, and Love Gilda has merged into one, which I think I have to spend some time and, and start my own um, and go out on my own in the social media world. So, wish that was fun. Thank you to Lisa. Of course, you just heard her say this, but you can find her at Love Gilda Film on Twitter. And Love Gilda also has a Facebook page. Go check that out. Go rent or buy the movie. 
It's a pretty special film, and it's Lisa's first feature. Can you believe that? I can't wait to see what she comes up with next. Of course, you can follow the show in myriad places. It's on Twitter, at CNFPod, and at Brendan O'Meara, of course. Do I keep... I keep saying, of course. Stupid. Stupid. If you have any questions or things you're struggling with, perhaps verbal tics and things you say over and over and over again in your work, shoot me a note. Be sure to share the show across your platforms to help grow our little community in our little corner of the internet. And go subscribe to my newsletter at brendanomara.com. When I say share the show, you know, share it with one friend. Uh, Share it with the people who find you interesting on your social platforms. I don't care if you have four followers or 4,000. Doesn't matter. We're here to join join arms in this true storytelling medium. You know, I got to finish my book, man. This stupid book. Got to finish it. Why? Because I want to start like two other ones. I need to finish a stupid baseball book. I know how to sell it, don't I? Man. Uh, Anyway, that's it, brah. Remember, if you can't do interview, see ya.